Father, thank you for your tremendous love and grace for every provision that you make. Father, thank you for uh, opportunities that we have, like if this, uh, the IF conference this last weekend, and uh, Father, the opportunity just for providing an occasion to deepen faith and love for you and relationships. Uh, Father, we thank you that we have a camp that we can send our kids to and that they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we don't have to apologize for that, that we love Jesus and we want to communicate that not only to our own people, but we want that to be part of the fabric of how we represent you in the world. Father, as we continue to walk through the scriptures and continue to allow your spirit to teach us, we pray that we come humbly before your presence, that we come with open hearts, knowing that you are present with us, that you want to speak into our lives, and that we want to dig our feet and our lives and our hearts into the scriptures and allow you to grow our hearts so that we live by faith and not simply by our own intuition. Uh, Father, we entrust our time to you. We give you thanks for all of this and entrust the morning to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just so you have a framework here, this is the last week we're dealing with the whole issue of roles of men and women. We're going to talk about the second piece of marriage and how the relationship between husbands and wives. And then next week, we've, uh, we're going to be back into Romans. And so we're in the final stretch of Romans, the last three messages in Romans. Uh, on the 27th of this month, Bill Abler from Camp Tadmore, or Lebanon, flip back into Oregon for a minute, anyway, uh, it's, it's, anyway, it's, uh, it's one of those things, but anyway, he'll be here and he's going to present some things for Camp Lebanon. They're starting off some new capital uh, projects that they want to talk to us about, and then I'm going to allow him to speak on that particular Sunday, that's the 27th, and then uh, we'll finish off Romans before we get to Easter, and then we'll transition into a new series after that, so you kind of have a little bit of a map in terms of where we're going. Uh, I noticed that this month is Women's History Month, and there's all kinds of information to, you can know about uh, women's roles, equality, all the things that have grown up over the decades and centuries in terms of women in, in our community, in our culture, and as citizens of this country. Obviously, these are some of the things that we're trying to address even in the church. Uh, this... What we're finishing with, however, isn't just generally the idea of roles of men and women, we're thinking about marriage. We're gonna be in 1 Peter chapter three this morning, but as I was thinking about this, I kinda of thought, you know, what's a good quality marriage? What does it look like a little bit? And I ran across a couple of stories that I thought were humorous. There was a gentleman who was in hospice care. He was being taken care of in his home, and his, he was staying in the living room and he, they had a hospital bed there for him because he was kind of in those final stages, but there was times he had a lot of clarity and he could sort of sit up and get around. And one morning he woke up and he smelled chocolate chip cookies. And he loved chocolate chip cookies. And this kind of woke him up and he was like, couldn't say much, he was kind of weak, but he thought, chocolate chip cookies. So he literally dragged himself out of his bed, walked across the living room and with his walker and kind of walked into the kitchen and kind of snuck over to the table and his wife had been cooking chocolate chip cookies and uh, there was a whole table full of chocolate chip cookies. And as he got closer, he, she had her back to him and she suddenly heard something and turned around and screamed because she didn't expect him to be walking around and then walked over and promptly slapped his hand as he was reaching for one of the cookies. <laughs> and he goes, what are you doing? And she says, well, those are for the funeral. <laughs> don't, don't touch them. 
Well, maybe that marriage wasn't going as well at the end as it should have, possibly. Um, it also reminded me to flip the coin on the other side. Reminds me of a story about uh, Ralph and Janice were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary, and Pastor Jones in the congregation decided to call him up on stage. And uh, when he came up, he says, how do you manage to live with someone so well for like th- all those years? Ralph turned to the congregation and he said, well, I treated her with respect, spent money on her, and mostly I took her traveling on special occasions. And the pastor said, oh, trips, where did you go? And he says, well, for our 25th anniversary, Ralph said, I took her to Beijing, China. And the crowd nodded and murmured in appreciation and kind of clapped a little bit. And then as they recovered, the pastor looked to him and said, man, what a terrific example you are of a husband, Ralph. So where are you going to go on your 50th anniversary? He says, well, I'm going to go back to Beijing and get my wife, bring her home. Well, marriages aren't perfect, obviously. Uh, It's a challenge because you're dealing with two broken people trying to figure out life and what does it look like. And as we think about this, I want to finish this whole series as we finish on the idea of marriage out of 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to spend a minute just reading the text and just then highlighting some specifics. There's no way we can dig into seven full verses and do them justice this morning, but I actually want to start in 1 Peter chapter 2 because at the beginning of chapter 3 verse 1, it's going to say, likewise, wives, here's how you need to do something. When it gets to verse 7, it's going to say, likewise, husbands, here's how you had to act. And the reason that likewise is there is because the example there to follow is Christ. And, and we don't understand that unless we back into chapter 2 and just see what, how Christ modeled. Obviously, Peter uh, speaks about a lot of suffering and, and things that happen in life that aren't, don't seem fair, and that can happen in marriage as well. So in chapter 2, verse 21, it says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously or justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Then it steps into chapter three. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, uh, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, which is actually, if I pause there, that's a really bizarre anomaly because you can go back all the way through Genesis and can't find her making that statement anywhere, frankly. So it's kind of an odd interpretive element. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Verse seven, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Uh, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
So obviously there's some things to look at here and a whole truckload of things that we can talk about. There's certainly some interpretive elements here and obviously the big bugaboo in the whole text is verse seven where it refers to the woman as the weaker vessel which we will try to address that in terms of how I think what Peter is saying. So when we look at this, I wanna start with the context. In 1 Peter chapter two, he is talking about masters and slaves and sometimes slaves or people that work for masters had masters that weren't nice. Uh, some of them were good and respectful, others were harsh and didn't treat them all very fairly or evenly or with justice. So it says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer it, uh, for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So life is not perfect. We know that there's times we're treated unfairly. We won't get over to the whole issue of abuse and those things. Those are not acceptable elements in terms of life. But in any situation, you might not get the raise from your boss that you were hoping for. Your spouse may snap at you because of what's going on. And these things feel unfair in life. So we're not dealing with the, the extreme elements of this in this particular situation. But a lot of the normal clutter and chaos and conflict that we, we run into in normal streams of life, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's at home. But the example of Christ is important because there's two things that we need to know. What he did not do when he suffered, and then what did he do? So what he didn't do is that it tells us that he never sinned, he never spoke with deceit, he never reviled others when they reviled him. So it gets into when he, they were calling him names and spitting on him, he didn't spit on them and call them names back. That's a kind of our typical human response. Someone gets in our face and we wanna get into their face uh, and, and deal with them accordingly. Christ never threatened when he was treated unjustly. So the thing that Jesus does not do is he doesn't retaliate. So the idea here is certainly for masters and slaves is that it does you no good to be retaliating in, in, a, in the similar fashion by which you're treated. If someone treats you unfairly and then you're gonna, in spite of that, you're gonna get even by treating them unfairly or speaking harshly or whatever, he says there's no value. That's not precious to God. What is valuable to God is that there's times in life we don't get treated right, and what is precious to God is those who endure by doing what's right in spite of being treated badly. It's a really simple concept, but it's often very, very hard to do, is that I'm committed to doing what God calls me to do, to doing what's right, in spite of the fact that I'm being punished for doing the right thing. Then there's the example of what Christ did do. For to you, this, uh, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You know, we often struggle with this idea of following the example of Jesus because our first disclaimer is, well, he was Jesus and I'm not him. Whatever Jesus is doing, there's, we, we automatically go, I'm terrified of failure because I know I can't live out the Christian life the way Jesus said, and therefore I'm not gonna try. Well, maybe I'll try, but I've got a really low bar on what that looks like. And, and what he's saying here is very explicit, that we're to walk in his footsteps to imitate Jesus in the same way that he lived out life in really unfair circumstances. This isn't theory, this isn't philosophical thought in the classroom. The example is extreme, it's Christ being crucified on a cross. And that becomes the context in which we're to follow. Now, it doesn't mean we 
uh, will go through the same kind of horror and moral evil that Jesus went through. In fact, most of, for most of us, we, we might, uh, our, our experience is just someone snapped at us or someone called us names or you didn't get something that you thought you deserved and so we can easily react badly to it. But at the heart of this is that little phrase, likewise, at the beginning of chapter three, verse one, and the beginning of chapter three, verse seven, wives are to live in such a way that imitates the person of Christ. And so I wanna take a look at some of the elements that are here very briefly. Likewise, wives, keep on entrusting yourself to him who judges righteously. That's where I, the way I would interpret likewise, in the same way that Christ entrusted himself to the to his father, and keep on submitting yourself to your husband, even if some of them do not obey the word. Now there's two ways to translate this. Most think that the translation means that some of these women are married to men who aren't believers, and therefore they're not gonna share the same values or interests, and so he's basically saying, the idea of submitting isn't really conditional, that if they do the right thing, that's the only time I do the right thing. Even if some of them are not Christians, then I need to submit, look to him for certain things that are gonna be tricky because they're not gonna flesh it out the way Christ calls a Christian husband to do. But he says, you do the right thing. You keep doing the right thing even if they don't share the same values. The other side of the coin, which I also think is valid, is that, uh, believe it or not, Christian husbands aren't perfect and don't always do what the word says they're supposed to do either. That might be news to you, um, but I've uh, experienced it myself, so has my wife, and I would dare say that probably anyone who's married has experienced that as well. If anyone says differently and they think they've done it perfectly, let me know after and we'll have that discussion. But the idea here is that um, some of the husbands, even if they're Christians, and I think I would tie this into verse seven, may not be behaving towards their wives in a Christianly manner, in the way that God calls them to act. And so the call for the Christian wife is, you still need to submit because this isn't contingent upon him just doing the right thing. This is, I'm, you're going to entrust yourself to your heavenly father who will judge rightly someday, may not be immediately, but someday will sort of say, hey, husband, what, what were you thinking? Like, what's the deal here? You're supposed to be treating your wife in such a way because that's what I've called you to do. It's not conditioned on whether she does everything perfectly. But I'll tell you, one of the great struggles in, even in Christian marriages is, well, if you're not gonna do your thing, then I'm not gonna do my thing. That, if, hey, if you're gonna act badly, then that gives me permission to act badly, so you get the bad stuff because you're not doing what I think you should do. That's not really what Christian marriage is about. And that's why I think he says, your example is Christ, not your husband. Husband, your example isn't your wife, it's Christ. And so this becomes the call that they're supposed to live under. And so the, the principle here is there's a God-given responsibility that's not conditioned on how well the other person is doing. And we have to sort of think through the implications of that. There's four things or four principles or elements that I think it talks about the wife. And I hope you'll see these encouragement. We're just gonna touch on them to just frame this a little bit. The first one is our activity. Her responsibility is to keep submitting to her husband because it follows Christ's example to do good even if there's, their husband is not being obedient to the word. 
If you interpret that as they're not a Christian, that's fine. If you interpret that as a Christian guy who's, not, who's slacking off and neglecting his responsibility to, if I borrow Ephesians 5, to nurture and cherish his wife and love her as Christ loved the church, God says, I still want you to do the right thing by submitting and, and fulfilling your responsibilities. But then he says, you have a redemptive conduct. There's a way that you can impact your husband, even if they're not obedient to the word, by, by your behavior. And you'll notice he's very clear about this in the text. He says that you can win him without a word by the way you conduct yourself, by your character. We'll talk about character and behavior. The problem in marriages, and guys, we probably deserve this in times, when we slack off, then our wives gently remind us of things that they need from us. And of course, we become really good at just ignoring that because we think of it differently than being reminded. And then we don't do that, so then they come back and they give us another gentle reminder. And we do what most guys do. We go, fine. If you're gonna try to manipulate me into doing what you want, I'm not gonna do it. And then they start into what we would call nagging because at some point we may have even said, yeah, I'll do this, but like that was three years ago. And so it's interesting. So the, the often wives will nag their husbands and that usually ends badly knowing where guys' egos are most of the time. And, and so the admonition here is to say, listen, you can have even a more powerful impact that by, by just living in a way that God calls you to live, and the Spirit of God will convict him of his stuff when they see your pure conduct as a model of Christ, regardless of how he's talking to you or not talking to you or whatever he's doing. Now, that's not the final answer in terms of troubleshooting stuff. That would be oversimplistic. But his call here really comes back to the activity is, okay, my response, I'm gonna keep submitting and doing what Christ wants me to do, I'm not gonna turn into the nag, although there's always room for discussion in any, any kind of healthy relationship, and I'm going to live redemptively so that the Spirit of God can convict him of what he needs to do. And so it ends up being a reflection of Christ when husbands see your respectful and pure conduct. And, but the point is also here, whether they respond to that or not, you're doing the right thing. You're doing what, you're entrusting yourself to God who says, listen, if. If this needs to be come to, held to accountability at some point, you may not see it now, but God will deal with it. God will take his own ways to deal with your husband. What, what you just keep doing is doing what God asks you to do. It was a real struggle when my mom became a Christian after my dad, uh, after they got married, and my folks plugged into a non-evangelical gospel-centered church. It, wasn't, it was moralism. But when my mom met some friends that invited her to go to a Bible-centered church, my dad went, yeah, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Then it got kind of tricky as to, well, would dad forbid her to go or would she be able to go? Well, I know lots of wives who would say, well, if my husband's not going, I'm not going at all. And I, it's always, I get the tension because I lived with it. I lived with it all the time in terms of my dad's values and what was going on and my mom's commitment to spirituality. And my mom made a choice that she's gonna go as often as it was she could and my dad never made a fuss about it. And she kept doing the right thing even though she would love to him to be with her. She went and did the right thing because that's what God called her to do. She didn't want my dad 
or the, the person with the lowest spiritual commitment to set the culture for her own life. And so the problem she ran into is she ran into Christian women at church who started ragging on her because she was putting up with the, the, the neglect of my dad. Kind of like, thanks gals, really appreciate the support. So she was caught between women who were trying to say, I'd never put up with that kind of stuff. I'd put my foot down. And my dad, who sort of had a spiritual bent to him, but it wasn't about relationship with Jesus, and she had to kind of walk between these two brush fires to try to figure, and she was committed to doing what was right as far as she believed God had called her to do it. And so it was, a, it's a, it was an important piece in our life because the only reason we're uh, us brothers are where we're at is because of the spiritual influence of my mom. I mean, it was powerful. She never ragged on us or nagged on us. She just invited us and loved us and cared for us and talked about spiritual things. My dad had really no interest at it. But boy, I tell you, it made a huge difference. It made all the difference in the world is that she kept doing what was right. The second thing here is her adornment. Now, we could probably spend all day on this if we wanted to, the, the word adornment is interesting. It's the Greek word cosmos. In our English language, we get the word cosmetics. And it literally means about trying to beautify something through decorating. I can't change what it means. That's just kind of what it means. It also has this idea of bringing order to things. So, you know, you get into these discussions and it's like, well, the reason we have a cosmetic industry in our world and in our culture is that it's trying to beautify something that needs some order. Whatever, however you want to interpret it, that's the, that's the idea here. And he's saying, listen, I, and I don't think this means neglect yourself. What I think it means is, listen, don't make your entire world external. Don't, don't make that the highest priority of your life. I mean, I could bring in all kinds of magazines from our culture that says if you don't look like this, then you're nobody. If you don't have these products, then you're obviously sloughing. If you don't have these clothes, then, well, you're not very high class. And we've shared with you as a family in the past, although this probably isn't fair to some of you, the struggles we went through our daughter who in her junior high years started buying into this perception and this fantasy about what magazines and the culture said uh, makes a person beautiful and attractive and valuable. We had a really challenge trying to uh, allow God's grace to rescue her from some really difficult challenges. And so the point is, when he gets here, is he's saying, listen, there's nothing wrong with taking care of yourself and being attractive for your husband, but he says, let, let the focus and the priority and the passion of your life to cultivate the kind of inward person that, that thrives because there's a relationship with Christ that, that reinforces your value as a person, the significance of who you are because of who Christ is, not because of external things in this world. And he, and he makes it pretty clear that this idea is there's beauty in the inward person. It doesn't matter how gorgeous or handsome you are now, eventually you're going to lose it. It's going to pass, I can tell you. But there's people that spend their whole life trying to wrap their whole sense of value around external things in terms of looks and appearance and clothing and all this kinds of stuff. And it's, it's, it's a fantasy world. And it's a dangerous fantasy world. 
you couldn't find anything further from what God says is precious, and the, and the text is pretty clear. Adorn yourself with the inner person, the beauty of the inward reality of who you are in Christ, and allow that to be your godliness and your adornment. Make sure you, you, you decorate your heart with the things of godliness and love and joy and the fruit of the Spirit. Let that be your demeanor. Let that be the beauty of your life. Because the problem is, is that if, if, if things are external, it, one violates one of the most significant principles in Scripture. God looks at the heart, not the outward appearance. But you're going to chase that one for your whole life and come up empty. There's people who waste their entire life chasing this facade of what makes their life significant. The third one is the wife's character. It's attitude. Developing godliness and character Character that reflects the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. By the way, just so you don't think gentle is kind of this, well, you know, need to be gentle and don't speak up. And the, this is the same word that's used of Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, where he says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and take your yoke upon me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. So the idea of gentle is, is not a demeaning statement at all. It, it's pertaining to not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. It's humble and it's being meek, so there's a sense of strength in a person who is gentle because they don't have to go around proving anything. And the idea of quiet is pertaining to a person who is quiet, peaceable existence or attitude. It, their life is ordered internally in such a way that they are secure and they're okay with who they are. And I would say from a Christian perspective, that's always grounded in your relationship with Jesus and in the scriptures. I mean, think of it. Jesus washed his disciples' feet as a slave, and he was okay with that because he didn't walk out of there going, oh, I wonder what they're going to think of me. I mean, well, man, I was kind of a demeaning role, and that was normally beneath me, but like, well, I gave it a shot. I hope it works. See, the people who are the most secure there's very few things that are beneath them. Humility and gentleness, that's a matter of strength, not weakness. And so the, the, her attitude is one that really relies on the strength of God's grace to say, in one sense, my sense of value and acceptance and worth is based on what Christ says, not necessarily the sarcasm of my husband. Because the danger is, is that husbands sometimes can say things that can really break their wives. They're trying to be funny, but it doesn't end up that way, and we'll talk about it in a minute. And the last one is affirmation. Her, her confidence is that they refer to Sarah and Abraham, and I'm not gonna get in the weeds of Sarah obeyed Abraham. I, I actually personally am convinced. They, they actually take it back to uh, Matthew uh, was it 18, where it talks about she laughed when the Lord had promised that they're gonna have a child. Um, she doesn't say, yes, Lord. Well, I mean, it's, it's really a tricky, convoluted thing. I actually believe it goes back to the statement in chapter 17 where God comes to Abraham and he says, your wife, Sarai, you're gonna now give her a new name and that's gonna be Sarah because you're gonna have my blessing and promise to you is she's gonna have children between the two of you and I think her obedience to Abraham is, is accepting God's promise through what Abraham communicated to her and joining him in that. Because the very next statement here is, and you are her children. 
And I think it's related to believing God's promise. So her obedience to Abraham was simply, I'm gonna obey or believe the promise God made to you about what's gonna happen to us, and I think that's probably more in line with her obedience than, yes sir, tell me what to do, and all that kind of stuff. It was a patriarchal system, but I think it's far more connected to the idea of God's promise than his power, than Abraham's power. So as you look at this, I think it provides and paints a very high profile of the significance of a wife and the power of her personal presence in this relationship. It is absolutely necessary, it's indispensable, and you know, fortunately if for us guys, if you were fortunate enough to mar- uh, marry someone above our pay grade, it is transforming for us. And that becomes the heartbeat. But let me think about this in terms of then it flips over to the husbands, and we deal with this really extraordinary text where it talks about this exhortation to husbands. Husbands, live uh, likewise in the way that Christ entrusted himself to his heavenly father, And, and he says, you have responsibilities here to your wife, not over your wife, but to her. And this is interesting. Live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. I'm reading this out of New American Standard, not this one. Uh, The the ESV and others translate it as uh, live with your wives in an understanding manner as with the weaker vessel. And the article actually isn't in the text. They do that because it seems to be an obvious comparison between her and her husband. I actually don't like having that article in there, I think it makes a false comparison, and I'll explain it to you in a minute. I think it should read that you need to look at her as a weaker vessel, not as the weaker vessel. And you, you look go, okay, what does that mean? I'll show you in a minute. I'll show you in a minute. But the idea here is that the exhortation is really wrapped around two verbal ideas, two participles. The one is, dwell with your wives in a certain manner, and the other one is, grant her honor. Those are the two driving activities of the husband in terms of his relationship to his wife. And so the the statements are really, I think, powerful. Live with your spouse in an understanding manner, um, which, let me pause there, it literally means according to knowledge. Now, if I back up into the earlier verses where it tells us that a woman's adornment ought to be the hidden person of the heart, the word hidden literally means something that someone doesn't know about, and it's literally, unless the person tells them, they won't know about it. Now, based on the whole flow of the text, I would say that the, uh, the, the responsibility of the man is get to know the heart of your wife constantly, because it's always growing and changing and developing, just like yours is, is if, you're, if you're growing in Christ. The problem is we get this picture of our wife, and we kind of lock it like, oh, I know her until tomorrow, or the next day. See, what happened to you is people think they got someone figured out, and this is the way they see them, and then that's what stays in place for the next 10 years. And then they do something that doesn't fit that, and it's going like, what's the matter with you? You're not supposed to do that. Really, why? So the idea is, keep on exploring and not learning and and giving more attention to the internal reality of her heart than flattering her with the externals. It's great, they they wanna know, my wife will say this to me all the time, I dress for you. I'm going like, that's pretty cool. I go, 
really? <laughs> but, but the idea is, is that she's doing that because she loves me and cares about me and wants to be attractive. But what I need to, and I appreciate that, but what I need to do is I need to get to know her and her heart, not just box her into what I think she is. And so it says, live with an understanding at her. God considers the inward character of godliness in the inner person as very precious. Literally the phrase is almost priceless. That's the key, that's the phrase there that he's using. And, And then husbands, don't focus so much on externals, focus on internals. I mean, Ephesians made it clear we're to nurture and cherish our wife so that she can become the, God, uh, the woman of God and we can be a catalyst to strengthen that. She doesn't have to do it in spite of us. So the second admonition here is the exhortation for husbands to grant their wives honor. And he gives two reasons. Because she's a weaker vessel and she's a co-heir in the grace of life. Now, there's lots of interpretations on this thing. Let me try to suggest it. Most commentators will say, well, the obvious point here is that she is physically not as strong as the husband, which generally is true. It's not like, it's always true, but generally it's true. Men tend to have bone structures and size and things that are, that are bigger than their wives, and doesn't, I don't, there's no spiritual betterment of that, it's just sort of the facts of things. So that's one of the the ideas. Some would suggest that maybe they're emotionally weaker, not weaker in the sense of failure, but they're more sensitive to things and so they can be victims of the comments and things that happen around them and guys, you know, because we don't feel anything, we're not affected by that stuff. Some would say that the the idea of the weaker vessel is the woman's willingness to accept a a submissive role to her husband. But the problem with that is that it's talking about how the husband should treat his wife, not how the wife should be responding to her husband in this text. So I think that's a problem. In fact, any of these that would suggest what the woman's responsibility, I think, misses the point of the text because it's saying, husbands, here's how I want you to Here's your responsibility to your wife. Here's how you need to see your wife. It doesn't say anything in this particular text other than that she is, I don't think, the weaker vessel, but a weaker vessel. So how does that shape how a husband's supposed to see his wife? Well, the, the other common denominator that gets tagged into here, and I don't want to get stuck in the weeds here, is 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the cross-reference that everyone goes to to say, well, this is what it means, and I'll just mention it. I don't want to get stuck here. The idea here is that this text says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to control his own body, or the word used there is vessel, same one in 1 Peter, and in holiness and honor. So there's this idea that, and it gets a bit convoluted, is that the husband needs to know how to control his wife so she doesn't have sexual temptations outside of marriage. It has sort of a sexual intimacy type connotation to it. It, that's possible, but it still doesn't seem to fit what I think Peter is talking about. And so the exhortation here in terms of weaker vessel is really the question, and I want to try to illustrate this differently for you. So what I'm going to do is, I, I actually believe that this is what we call in sort of exegetical terms is a hapax legomenon. And it's really basically a statement that says, this is the only time you're gonna find this statement. This is a unique phrase. The word vessel, the word weak, are used all over the scriptures, but never together like he has put it 
in this context. This is the only time you'll find it. And I believe it's more of an idiom. You know, it's, it's kind of like if I say to you, you go take, a, and I've used this before, if I tell you to go take a long walk off a short pier and you start dissecting the language of it and saying, well, how long does the pier have to be before it's short and how long is the walk? And if you walk off that pier, what's at the bottom of that drop off? And so you might conclude that when we're at summer camp, we never build short piers because people will walk off it and drown. What? <laughs> and I think that's a little bit what happens here and I want to try to illustrate what I really believe he's saying. And before I do that, let me, let me show you some of the state. Let me remind you of the statements that he says here. In 1 Peter 3, 7, look at, I want you to see how positive these statements are. Keep on dwelling or living with your wife in an understanding way. There's no sarcasm, no condens, uh, um, condescending tone. It's, it's learn to know your spouse. And then he says, grant her honor. The idea is to bestow, choose to honor her uh, in every way that you can, and that's an extremely positive statement. And then he says, because she's a co-heir with you in the grace of life. So it talks about God's grace and, and that she's a co-heir walking with you in this journey. Everything about this is positive except for this thing like a weaker vessel, which is almost impossible for you and I to read and go, how does that positive? How does that make sense? Now there's two things here that you need to note. One is, there's two statements that talk about his responsibility to his wife. The other two are, is his perspective of his wife. So there's two things, to dwell with her with knowledge and then to honor her. Those are the two active responsibilities. But then there's two perspectives. It's she is to be a weaker vessel in your eyes and you're to see her as a co-heir in the grace of life. So obviously the catch here is what does a weaker vessel mean? Well, I believe it's very idiomatic. Um, I'll, I won't take the time to look at the rest of it, but if we went through the first five or six verses, we'd see the focus as very positive. Don't make it external. Let it be the hidden beauty of the inner person of who you are. Your conduct is pure and respectful. This is the kind of person that God deeply respects and honors himself. So I believe that this idiom says something a little bit different. Here's the way I want you to, to, I want to illustrate it for you. I have two items up here. This is a vase that my wife and I picked up from Oaxaca, Mexico. Uh, we spent several missions trips down there, and this is really unique kind of pottery to that particular region. The kind of mud and the technique of building these things is very unique to that particular region. Uh, this isn't a million dollar vase or anything, but it's, it's valuable to us because it reminds us of some profound experiences with family and friends as we we're doing mission trips. Now that being said, over here is I've got styrofoam cups. And if I ask you the question in terms of this is, which one of these vessels, this one or the styrofoam cup, which one is the stronger or the weaker one? Well, it kind of depends, doesn't it? If I got up on the roof of this building and I took these two items and I decided I was going to drop them off the roof, which one would be the stronger one? Well, this flimsy little styrofoam cup is going to win because this one's going to go into a lot of pieces if it hits the deck. But if I put some items, a book or something on top of these and kept adding books, which one would end up being the stronger one? 
Well, eventually, this thing is just going to collapse. This one's going to hold a lot more. So I think if we literally start rummaging around in this text to try to figure out what weaker means, we're going to get into some really bad weeds. Well, you could probably live with the fact that she's physically maybe not as strong as her husband, but what does that have to do with anything he's saying here? To me, you know, okay, so your wife can't pick up a 50-pound sack of flour and carry it over to the mill. Like, okay, so who care? what does that have to do with you caring for your wife? I mean, unless you're going to fire her from your own business because she can't do the job. I mean, I don't know. I, I, it, the physical thing means, doesn't mean anything in terms of the language of the text. In fact, in the first six verses, it's don't worry as much about externals. Worry about the inward realities of the inner person. It really gets dangerous when you start talking about emotionally or mentally are women weaker than men. And that just ends up being a stupid conversation. So the question is, what is Peter really trying to get at? And here's my proposal to you in thinking about it. As an idiom, I want to suggest to you that what he's saying to husbands is that if you want to look at your wife properly, look at her as a really priceless vase rather than just a cheap styrofoam cup. What do I mean by that? Well, if you go to Timothy, they'll talk about different vessels that God uses for honor or dishonor. The, the idea is, is that when, um, when God gives a man, a spouse, to be his helper in this journey in life, my contention is he gives him a gift that he doesn't deserve and hasn't earned. And, and I think it would be better for the husband to look at his wife not as someone who's inferior or weaker in some particular way, but as a one-of-a-kind, precious gift from God that if you don't treat right and you break, you cannot replace her. She's, she's, that's why I don't like the translation, she is the weaker vessel because it simply compares him to her. If you talk about her as being a weaker vessel, then it's like, here's a gift that God has given to you. If you treat her as a weaker vessel, you're going to take much better care of this than this. Because what, we don't, do we care about this? No, we don't. If I put these two, if let's say this thing was worth $500,000 and, and you put them on two pedestals in your house, which are the one you're going to worry about the most? Especially if you have kids. right? They can knock this one over all day long and you just replace it. This one you're going to guard with your life and you might even threaten the kids a couple of times if they go near it. Why? Because a spouse given to a man is not just a second-rate human being that is there simply so he can control and get her to do a bunch of stuff that he doesn't want to do. At the heart of marriage is that our spouses are a gift that are like the most expensive vase you could think of because they're one of a kind, they're given to you, don't do something stupid to break her because she's irreplaceable. You can't just swipe out spouses like cheap styrofoam cups, it doesn't work. And I think what Peter is saying is she is a co-heir in the grace of life. 
You need to live with her, with, you need to study and learn as much about her as you possibly can so that you can cherish and nourish her, that you can honor her in the way that she deserves because in, she is a gift that God has given to you. Don't be a guy and even accidentally break her. And we can do that through our words. All you have to do is say something stupid like, you're just like your mother. And you can have a war on your hands. Or you can criticize and be condescending to say, well, you're always like this and make her feel like she's worthless. I want to show you a picture of a really expensive Ming vase. That vase there was bought by a gentleman in Vegas for $10 million. I bet you he's not going to leave it out on his countertop table for everyone to see. It's going to be under lock and key. It's going to be safe. He might even hide it away because it's absolutely one of a kind and there's no way he's going to take the risk that he's going to break it. The danger for us is that if we start treating our wives like a styrofoam cup, we're going to damage them and hurt them. But if we learn to treat them, I mean, this is a weaker vessel. It's fragile, not because it's weaker than this thing, but it's irreplaceable. She's not a food item. She's a gift from God. And I think what Peter is trying to say is that if you jump into this relationship of marriage, the power of God's grace wants to use your relationship to reflect Christ's love for the church, to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. We gotta push away the things from the fall where the husband is going to rule and dominate his wife and start ordering and demanding things and getting angry at her because he's not, she's not living up to his expectations and where she tries to manipulate and maneuver and, and coerce him to do things because he's not getting all the tasks done that I want done. That's a perfect reflection of our fallenness after the fall, but it's not what biblical marriage is about. If we understand our roles and we understand the perspective that God wants us to have, there is nothing more vital in God's redemptive program to reach a lost world than a couple who love Jesus, who are on task for the mission of the gospel, and they value each other in such a way that they are their best friend, their best advocate, the person that they'll go to no matter what happens in life, this other person has my back. That's what biblical marriage is about. That's where it maybe needs to begin for you even today. It's really easy for us to allow our marriages to slunk into really bad habits about how we talk and how we communicate or don't communicate or what we value or even if there's a spiritual component to it at all. It's not about husbands dominating and telling their wife what they have to do. It's about their ministry to them so that they can experience 
the glory and the grace of God to help them to become what God wants you to become as a godly, vibrant, faith-driven man so that she can be a helper with you in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we thank you that there is so much to learn from your word. You know, sometimes we worry so much about our own personal rights and freedoms that we forget to just simply live out the Christian life in the way that you've called us. Father, we know that none of our marriages are perfect, that we struggle, that we may have even snapped at one another on the way here this morning. Father, the great courage that we have to have in terms of our relationship is willing to value the person beneath the skin, to nurture and cherish, to respect and to love, to encourage and support, to live out our godly lives, even at times when the other person maybe not be doing what God's called them to be and do. Because the power of a personal example and the power of your personal presence in our life can rescue any of us from our own bad thinking and our own bad behavior. Father, help us to be vessels in your hand, set apart for honorable use to fulfill your purpose in the world. We thank you for the opportunity and all of these things we pray and give you thanks in Christ's name.